0: The rising inequality and growing political instability that we see today are the direct result of decades of bad economic theory. It's
1: time to build our economy from the bottom up and from the middle out, not the top down.
0: Middle out economics is the answer.
1: Because Wall Street didn't build this country. Great middle class built this country.
0: The more the middle class thrives, the better the economy is for everyone, even rich people like me.
2: This is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a podcast about how to build the economy from the middle out. Welcome to the show.
0: So Goldie, today we're gonna talk to Suzanne Kahn, who serves as vice president at the Roosevelt Institute, an organization we work closely with. And she's here to talk about Their new report, which is called Sea Change How a New Economics Went Mainstream. And I think you and I would have a lot of, (laughs) you uh, you know, like we we would have a lot to say about the report itself. I think our analysis of the sea change would take a different form. Or, I mean, not fundamentally, it would overlap, but not quite the same. we, we'd probably give ourselves a little more credit. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, and and some different kinds of things in in a yeah. different order and so on and so forth. But he, here's the thing that is a hundred percent correct about the report is that there has been a sea change.
1: We're in the middle of it right we now. Are, we
0: are we are in the middle of a of a profound sea change.
1: And in fact, Nick, you and I we've we've actually been writing about this for an— Upcoming publication, we, we feel that we are, we are in a middle-out moment.
0: Yeah. But, but you know, there was a billion little things mm-hmm. uh, happening simultaneously, a lot of people working on different things in different ways that came together to really create this phase change in how people saw economic cause and effect, how they saw what kind of policies made sense, what kind of things were possible— So on and so forth. You know, put aside who did what and how it all happened. It is no matter what. It's an extraordinarily important and consequential moment, and something to be celebrated and promoted.
1: (laughs) And it it is incredibly consequential. Potentially, what's happening now? Of course, uh, look, we don't know how this uh, how the twenty twenty four election will turn out. Yeah. It could turn out that uh, Trump wins and uh, everything the Biden administration has done gets thrown out the window along with all of our uh, democratic uh, institutions and norms. <laughs> yeah. And That's the end of life as we know it. Yeah. It, it could be that Biden wins and Trumpsters uh, uh, have an armed rebellion and we get the same thing as if Biden lost. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Or it could be that we have uh, four more years of uh, Joe Biden in the White House pushing Bidenomics, which we think is uh, very middle out. And it is enough time to complete the paradigm shift uh, that had happened in the early, similar to the one that happened in the early 80s when Ronald Reagan uh, really ushered in the the Reagan revolution, the yeah. neoliberal yep. revolution, the, the uh, economic paradigm that we've been living under ever since. And this Biden revolution, this middle-out revolution, uh, could be the guiding paradigm for the next few decades or more, a paradigm which we think is better capable of addressing our uh, crisis of uh, economic uh, inequality, our, our our crisis of faith in democracy, and of course the climate crisis, which neoliberalism cannot, cannot. It is impossible for neoliberalism to address the climate crisis uh, because it will argue that you do whatever the market does uh, is the most efficient and beneficial and moral and just outcome. Right. Uh, and the market will never address this on its own because as long as there is money to be made by burning oil and cutting down rainforests, then that is what the market will do yeah. because they have the right to do it. Property rights, uh, unencumbered by government and all that. So, yeah.
0: Anyway, it'll be really uh, interesting to talk to Suzanne about their report and to go through the, the elements of it. And with that, let's talk to Suzanne.
2: I'm Suzanne Kahn. I'm the vice president of the think tank at the Roosevelt Institute. We are a think tank that focuses on changing the conversation in which policy is made. And we work across issue areas from climate to corporate power to higher education. But a common theme in all of them is trying to move away from neoliberal policy paradigms and think about new economic policy paradigms that can help us build a more equitable economy. And my own expertise is really on labor and social insurance systems. I'm a historian by training, and now I get to work with our team across a really broad portfolio of issue areas. Most recently, I got to work on a report we did called Sea Change, about sort of everything that has happened over the last 15 years to get us to the economic policymaking moment we are now in.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, regular listeners know that that intersection between history and economics, that's my sweet spot. That's what I love to talk about. So it's great to have you on the pod.
0: Nick, you want to start off? Sure. I mean, uh, so you've got this new report out. Why don't you kind of give us uh, the top line?
2: Sure. So uh, we called it Sea Change um, because it is really about what a huge change has occurred over the last 15 year- years or so in the sort of shared common sense in which policymakers make economic policy. And I know this is something you all have talked about on previous episodes, but again, what we were really wanted to document and look at was how different the sort of policymaking landscape is now. Um, than it was even, honestly, four years ago. Yeah,
0: Um, well, during the Obama administration.
2: Right, during the Obama administration, during the Trump administration. And we really wanted to trace out what had happened to get us to this moment and how we got to a point where sort of policies that were unimaginable Eight years ago, four years ago, everything from how Biden responded to the COVID-19 recession with a massive investment and actually spending money um, and not austerity politics, to the climate policies in the IRA, to his willingness to try and cancel student debt are all, we think, representative of a much larger shift away, away from thinking about policymaking as something that should happen with markets as a central frame. So that was, that's sort of the top line number one. And then I would say top line number two is we are in a scary moment. We don't know what will replace the neoliberal assumptions of the past. We at Roosevelt certainly are proposing new frameworks that would move us in a, progra- a more progressive direction that center equity and concern for our climate. But where we're going next is up for grabs, and we thought that a first step to helping direct that was to document how far we've come which can hopefully give us some momentum in that progressive direction
0: so i mean what are the high points or or you could you could also
1: start from the low points to the high points where we were 15 years ago to where we are now because it is quite remarkable
0: yeah
2: well i'll say our sort of like internal joking title for this before we released it was millennials now old And we really felt like as we were writing it, this was a story about the lessons a whole generation of people learned from living through the economic crisis of 2008, 2009, and sort of the long 10 years after that. So we started a lot of the story with Occupy Wall Street as a response to the neoliberal framework with which the economic crisis was met, and really tried to show how the groundwork was laid on a whole range of issues. I think it's fair to say no one really expected in during the presidential primary of 2020 that Biden would be the guy who like made all of these or made many of those ideas become at least partial realities that had been ideas that had been coming up from movements and economists and think tanks on really pushing the edge of, Pushing against neoliberalism for you know the past ten or so years, but the world changed so fast that the, the Bidenomics agenda has really reflected many of those lessons that um, I think were started to be learned and thought through in the wake of that 2009 recession.
1: One of the advantages to having uh, an 80-year-old president is that uh, Joe Biden actually was elected to the Senate before neoliberalism took hold so he's old enough to remember what it was like before neoliberalism and what type of policies we had back then
2: yes even older than the Millennials who are now old (laughs) (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) so let's talk about some of these policies and how, how they're different I'm also curious not just from the policy perspective but how the economic thinking that under that underlies and informs these policies has changed
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite examples is actually student debt. Um, I think you can really trace an interesting arc from, again, Occupy Wall Street all the way through to Biden ultimately trying to cancel student debt. We can put the Supreme Court aside for a second. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things that really comes up during the Occupy moment is challenges to how much debt people are holding across a whole – or for a whole variety of reasons and really challenging that. But the challenge to student debt gets really institutionalized. A bunch of organizations, including the Debt Collective, are formed out of the initial Occupy moment. And they really start to put together a challenge to the idea that higher education should be paid for in this way, which is to say by individuals using private financing, which was really – sort of the product of neo- neoliberal policy ideas that's said, we're all individuals who compete in a market. We all have our own human ca- personal human capital to invest in. And investing in higher education for ourselves will be a good investment that prepares us to be little market actors who are going out into an equitable, like an, a, a free market, and we're just all going to compete from an equal starting platform. So I think over the course of the 2020 or the 2010s you really see a growing challenge to this this neoliberal idea about human capital underlying a like growing movement for free college and debt cancellation you see Bernie Sanders pick it up in the 2016 campaign and then by the 2020 democratic primary sort of all the candidates are fighting for who has the most progressive free college and debt cancellation plan. And one of the results of that is that when the COVID-19 pandemic starts and they are sort of looking around for ways to get money back into people's pockets and stimulate the economy, student debt payments get paused, which I don't think would have happened without that eight years of work putting that idea forward. And it creates a momentum of its own so that when you know when Biden comes in, into office, people have not been paying student debt payments for months, that continues. And ultimately, we see him try and cancel student debt and make major reforms to the way that payment systems work going forward as well.
1: Right. And it's interesting because when you look at opposition to student debt forgiveness, it's often presented as like totally outside the norm that Somehow we're going to take this large group of people and say, oh, you don't have to pay your debt, and that that is un-American in some way. But really, it's the student debt itself that is the historical anomaly. Our entire public education system, both uh, K-12 and uh, public colleges and universities, was founded on the notion that a well-educated, skilled workforce was a public good, not private, uh, personal-owned human capital, but it's a public good. It was advocated for by industry because they knew they needed a literate and numerate workforce uh, in a modern economy. And it's the neoliberal era where we say, no, 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 that's a private good. You should pay for it yourself. That's the historical anomaly. So again, it's, it's- in some ways, it's fascinating to see this start to shift back to what it had been for the the previous 150 years.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, Rosa did a lot of work in the 20, in, you know, 2018, 2019, looking at all the different ways that that idea about human capital had been misunderstood and so we have a great paper about how actually employers are just demanding more and more credentials for the same Mm -hmm. jobs and (laughs) and similar pay it's not that you're actually investing in yourselves in a way that is getting new new return you know growing your i guess returns on that investment and more i think like even more damningly employers are demanding many more degrees for the same jobs from black applicants than from white applicants
1: We see that. There's studies showing that as uh, unemployment goes up, uh, employers demand more credentials. As the labor market tightens and it's harder for them to find workers, they demand fewer credentials. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a market power uh, issue.
0: So speaking of market power, why don't we talk for a little bit, uh, Suzanne, about promoting competition. Take us through that.
2: I think another thing you see over the course of the 2010s is a growing sense that there are these very large companies like Amazon that are having more and more control over our lives and are being allowed to grow and sort of absorb their competitors because of the way we've come to understand competition policy and antitrust law. And one of the Another sort of big shift that you see the Biden administration implementing is appointing Lena Khan, who was like one of the leading critics of corporate concentration and a founder of the neo-Brandeisian sort of school of antitrust to run the FTC. And so we see them really centering an idea around needing more competition and really taking on corporate concentration, which I think is a larger part of... It's obviously its own pillar of Bidenomics, but I think across the board, one of the the breaks with neoliberalism that is really significant that we're seeing is an understanding of power and really trying to understand how power is playing out, whether it's in labor markets or among companies or in shaping public policy Um, and the competition policy is part of that.
1: Right, and that is that is really kind of a core feature of neoliberalism is uh, wishing away power. I think knowingly because it's it's an it's an ideology created to benefit people yeah. who have lots of power. So yeah. you want to pretend it doesn't exist.
0: But it's actually deep it deeper than the weaponized ideological framework of neoliberalism. Power is wished away, and you know, in neoclassical economics, right? Like the problem is deeper and worse because you can't make the math work if power exists, right, in, in these equilibrium systems. You, you you know, you have to assume power away. Well, if how markets do you mathematize perfect- power? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's very difficult. And, and you, you know, if you, you're desperate to believe that markets are perfectly efficient and people are perfectly selfish and rational and, you know, the economy is to optimal, power is very awkward. And ignoring power in economics would be like ignoring gravity in physics. You know, like you're missing the big part. (laughs) And obviously, one of the most exciting things about the Biden administration is their head on approach to this problem. And if we can get another four years, probably the most important legacy may be be maybe these executive orders that are trying to make markets truly competitive rather than the oligopolies that they mostly are, which is really, really exciting.
1: You know, I'm curious, Suzanne. We have a take on this, but whether you and your colleagues see a coherent narrative in Bidenomics and its three core stated their their self self proclaimed three pillars of empowering workers, uh, making smart investments, and promoting competition. Do you see a coherent economic narrative in that?
2: I do. I'm sure we all have thoughts <laughs> about mm-hmm. how well that narrative's being presented. But I think, especially for folks like you and me, who have been thinking a lot about neoliberalism and its coherent narrative, the three pillars do all take on the idea that markets are the primary frame through which public policy, the the government's role is to let markets be markets, (laughs) basically. Mm And I I mean, I think it all goes back to the power piece we were just talking about. You know, I think they're all trying to look at how do we shift who or what companies have power and actually say there's a role for the government to play in choosing who we want to have power and how we want them to have power in around these different issues we need to solve.
1: Right. And in in rebalancing that power imbalance, I mean, that is you know, I- implicit in their pillar of, of empowering workers, it's 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 to use government to either provide or to enable uh, this countervailing power in a segment of the market which is, you know, even Adam Smith acknowledges is leans in favor of the employer. That, that workers are naturally, individual workers are naturally at a disadvantage in terms of uh, their power relationship with their employer. This is very different from the neoliberal approach of, oh, just let the markets work it all out and we'll end up with an efficient and fair outcome because that's how markets always work.
0: Yeah. And everyone has equal power in the system. But let, let's get to some of the,
1: the specifics of this report in terms of What has led to these uh, changes, both in policy and and theory? Obviously, we've got two big ones, which kind of bookend this, which is the financial collapse, the Great Recession, and that long, painful, slow growth recovery. And then on the other end, the pandemic. Uh, But there's a lot of things that happened in between. And Nick and I were chatting before you, you, you joined us and One of the things we noticed was missing from the report was a mention of the fight for 15 and the success of these um, uh, minimum wage movements in uh, cities and states around the country. I'm curious how, whether you feel the fight for a a minimum wage kind of changed the way people think about economics, and uh, also if you want to go through some of the other things that uh, helped brought us to this moment.
2: That's a great point about the fight for 15. I think we really tried to pick a few examples kind of within each pillar to chart. I do think it'd be interesting to think about where the fight for 15 would fit in there. I certainly think it's part of the empower and educate workers track. I absolutely do think the fight for 15 was a significant moment. I think a lot of the Biden administration's biggest successes around Worker empowerment have really come back actually to the ARP and really just and the decision to prioritize full employment over in some ways uh, inflation, (laughs) and that we have we don't talk enough about how that has really allowed for the wave of strikes and empowerment of workers as sort of a generational high. So I think that we were focused on that piece of the story and fight for 15 is probably more related to some of the unfinished business. but I think there's there's still a lot of work to do to reform our labor laws um at the national level.
1: I think what we would tell you is that it's we always viewed it as a wedge issue that mm-hmm. that the fight for fifteen was was both good policy in that it it had it clearly the studies show it's had a a huge impact on on people's lives in terms of uh, raising wages at the low and even pushing up a bit uh, as uh, uh, people with uh, above minimum wage jobs uh, rise in response, but it also, I think, has done a great job, not just just of educating workers as to, hey, we can win something like this. Mm-hmm. But I think pundits, journalists, economists, the fact that it called the lie, on one of the core principles, not just of neoliberalism, but of neoclassical economics, that when the price of something rises, people purchase less of it. That uh, the labor market is somehow locked into the law of supply and demand, that uh, if you raise the minimum wage, uh, employers will hire fewer low-wage workers. And that has turned out not to be true again and again. Either there's no correlation, the studies show, or in fact, that recent study showing that the higher the minimum wage went, the larger the increase in employment locally. And to us, you know, we think this is just, it calls the lie on orthodox economics entirely because if they're wrong about something as basic as that, what else are they wrong about?
0: Yeah, it feels to us like the $15 minimum wage was the first big assault on neoliberalism because the the orthodox thinking was when you raise wages, it kills jobs. And and the degree to which that idea got embedded in policymaking explains probably a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars of the the two and a half trillion dollar shift in income from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. It, all of these things i think together combine to shake the sort of neoliberal and neoclassical way of understanding economic cause and effect which makes things like canceling student debt promoting competition all that other stuff seem more logical and plausible i mean I th- you know the title the title of your report i think is really is really spot on which is sea change <laughs> right it it is a profound change in how policymakers see economic cause and effect. And I think what's what's really remarkable is that, you know, we had eight years of a democratic administration not very long ago that had the political power to do all the stuff that the Biden administration has done, but just chose not to do it because the economists that were running that policy shop thought that all of those things would be a big government job killing attack on freedom.
1: Right. And kudos, by the way, to Roosevelt, which played a, a big role in making um, sure
0: those guys didn't get their jobs back. <laughs> that's
2: right. The, yeah.
1: the, the old, uh, um, was it uh, personnel is policy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Roosevelt, you know, played a big role in helping to staff the uh, the in recommending staff for the Biden administration. So it's a much better personnel than we've had in the past.
2: Yeah, we're very proud of that. And I think I mean, I do think that the, you know, you asked what are the things that changed? And I, I do think that the experience of sort of the promise of the Obama administration, like I worked on that campaign. I remember the excitement of the election. And then the, I think there was a visceral experience of the sort of grip neoliberalism actually had on all policy imagination that occurred over those eight years that are part yeah. of what laid the groundwork for this sea change you know i would add to that you know an accelerating climate crisis as well <laughs>
0: and, and for the trump administration
2: yes well and then there's the uh but in some ways i think that's that's a different visceral experience yeah, than yeah.
1: The, Let, let's be fair to obama it's not his fault that he was so young look do I, do I generally think our, our president should be in their 80s? No. No. <laughs> but, but it's not, again, I, I repeat this a lot. It's, it's not all bad, <laughs> especially in this moment when you have somebody with the long life of experience to know that there are other ways of doing things than the way we've been doing it for the past 40 years.
0: So a couple of final questions. The first is our benevolent dictator question. So if you were in charge of everything, what would you do?
2: I, We at Roosevelt, because I think all, so much of our work is about the paradigm level and trying to shift the conversation, we spend a lot of time thinking about what a different policy world would look like. But I think we start to fail at our job when we reject all political constraints. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, I will tell you why. I think we and, you know, I can imagine the best of all possible worlds, but when we measure ourselves against that, it becomes really hard to celebrate our wins. And I do think part of our, of the point of this paper was not to say, you know, everything's great and we we did it all, but to say, look how far we've come and it is really important for building momentum that we recognize that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one final question, why do you do this work?
2: I have worked for labor unions, I've worked on like much more direct policy fights, and I think sometimes it can feel a little silly to focus at this high a level around and really be trying to think through the conversation in which policy is made. But on the other hand, I do think we are at this moment where people are questioning neoliberalism in a way and, and the, po- the sort of dominant policy frame in a way that has not happened in 30, 40 years And that's an incredible moment of opportunity. But it's also a moment where we don't know what's going to happen. Like we don't know if the answer if the new frame is going to lead us towards more climate catastrophe or less, whether if it's going to make the air safer to breathe, or less safe to breathe, if it's going to make people have more opportunity, no matter where they come from, or less. And I really think we, at a moment when things are up for grabs, it's so important that we are trying to ensure and putting forward a vision that can shape a whole range of public policies that move us in a more progressive direction.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being with us.
2: Yeah, thank you. This was fun.
1: Of course, Nick. Listening to Suzanne, I was uh, reminded of uh, one of our great American economists, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, <laughs> who was responsible for much of this, but also was absolutely right on at least one point. And uh, I remember this this quote very clearly: "Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs." The actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around.
0: Yeah, yeah, it couldn't be, it couldn't have been more right.
1: That was Milton Friedman on the ascendancy of neoliberalism. That they pushed these ideas for several decades, yeah. and when that crisis, the the stagflation occurred in the 1970s, and the Keynesians uh, seemed to be unable to come up with policies to address it. Uh, Friedman and his fellow neoliberals swooped in with their ideas that were lying around and uh, the neoliberal era was the result.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And here we are in a new era and there's a bunch of new ideas that are percolating in a really profound way and uh, will have, a I think I think, a really, a really big effect on the economy and ideally how people think about how the economy works.
1: You you know, one of the final things that Suzanne said that was that we don't know uh, what's going to happen. And and I agree in the sense that we don't know whether this new paradigm will be given the opportunity to take hold. But I think there are a lot of things that we do know about what that, if it does take hold, what that new paradigm will look like. Because there's been a lot of advances in uh, economics on the just the science of it over the past uh, few decades that informs uh, that middle out Bidenomics paradigm. Uh, There's a lot of empirical evidence that supports it. Right, and uh, I think one of the things that you and I have played a role in over the past decade is there's the the narrative has advanced. And, uh, you know, we are a storytelling species and having a good story to tell is really important. Yep, absolutely. We're we're telling a better story and it's catching on.
0: That's right. And, you know, the good news is, Goldie, is that no matter what happens, the state of the art in economics has changed. I mean, the Heritage Foundation is never going to change, right? The Cato Institute is never going to change. But the better economic ideas that are emerging from the academy, the fact that there's an empirical revolution going on in academic economics, where we're not just talking about some dumb theory, we're actually checking what happens in the real world to figure out if the theory makes any sense or not. Uh, You know, those trends, I think, are are not going to stop, they're going to accelerate. You know, I think there's a broad awareness within the academic economics community that a lot of the stuff that they said was true wasn't and so I I do think that they're you know obviously the world's at a very scary point but I do think that long term uh, the paradigm will shift Uh, the question is are we going to make a lot of progress soon or is that progress going to be slow and fitful and are we going to have to take two steps backwards or ten steps backwards to take one step forward that remains the question
1: and and I think one of the things that's encouraging to me about this is, you know, as, as Suzanne said, the, the, their, their joke title was, what, well, Millennials Get Old? And it's important to note that millennials who graduated into the job market in the mid-aughts, into the, the depths of the Great Recession and that slow recovery, they really suffered from neoliberal policies and neoclassical economic theory. They were the victims of it a lot of the losses that occurred to them will never be fully regained. These are people whose lifetime job earnings will never recover fully, whose uh, net worth will never recover fully from that lost decade uh, post-Great Recession. And and that lost decade was a consequence of bad policy. And contrast that which— what happened with the pandemic, which was a much bigger economic collapse than anything we saw uh, during the Great Recession? I mean, people have to remind themselves that the spike in unemployment uh, during the pandemic is so huge that we're going to have to just, you know, skip yeah. over it in future <laughs> graphs. Yeah. The graphs won't fit on the page. I mean, we're talking like magnitudes greater than anything we've ever seen in history ever. Yeah. And to have a disruption like that and to come out of it as well as we had, in fact, in some cases, many for many people better with higher incomes and more savings than they had before the pandemic. And then to have that that spike of, um, well, I know you hate to call it inflation, higher prices that, you know, spike of higher prices that we had and to be told, oh, no, we're going to have to have some suffering to deal with this. We're going to have to have seven and a half unemployment for two years. Go back to the bad times. And it turns out we didn't. Well, this shows you, oh, my God, government is not the problem. Government (laughs) can be the solution. And all that government spending actually paid off uh, in terms of uh, easing the transition into the pandemic and out of the pandemic and into this the historically strong labor market that we have today. So there you had a real life experiment. Yep. If you look at the millennials, they went through... The neoliberal policies following the Great Recession said, oh, no, we can't can't spend too much. We have to have austerity. That's the way to get out of this. And 10 years of suffering. And then we have the non-neoliberal, almost Keynesian approach to uh, the pandemic. And, oh, my God, did we come out of this uh, so much quicker and better from an even steeper decline?
0: There's lessons to be learned from real life. Yeah. Let's hope we learn the lessons. The the problem with humanity is we're so bad at that.
1: Well, again, tell the story, right? People need to know. People need to know. They need to stop focusing on one year of inflation, of higher prices, which was very volatile, clearly a supply side problem. Stop focusing on that and look at how your real wages are higher than they were uh, before those prices went up and how much better off you are coming out of the pandemic than you were coming out of the Great Recession. And man, Bidenomics starts to look pretty good. Absolutely. Again, if you want to read the full report, See Change, How a New Economics Went Mainstream, there is a link in the show notes.